News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Whatever craziness that we have going on in politics right now in our little corner of the world in British Columbia, we can at least look to the United Kingdom and say, well, it's not as bad as that. Because this morning, in fact, just in the last half hour, UK Prime Minister Liz Truss resigned, making her one of the shortest serving prime ministers in British history. How long? 45 days. It was just astonishing to watch unfold during that time. Her resignation follows a failed, and I mean, you know, with a capital F, failed tax-cutting budget that just rocked financial markets, led to a revolt within her own Conservative Party, and we will hear the results of that in just a few moments. But first off, here's what she had to say in her resignation. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning I met the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure that we remain on a path to deliver our fiscal plans and maintain our country's economic stability and national security. I will remain as Prime Minister until a successor has been chosen. Thank you. That is Liz Truss, Prime Minister, for 45 days. She will be for a few more until they select a new leader. So what led to this? Well, you probably saw in the news, you know, the pound was tumbling against the U.S. dollar. Financial markets had been royal. The economy was in turmoil because of the financial plan that Liz Truss had brought in without a whole lot of consultation. The markets did not like it. It was very controversial. And the whole idea of her being able to sustain in that job became untenable in the last 24 hours when other cabinet ministers started to resign. Yesterday, one of the Conservative MPs, Charles Walker, was talking outside the House of Commons about just the frustration, seeing everything happen, the arguing that was going on, the plans, the chaos. And here's what he had to say about the entire situation. This whole affair is inexcusable. It, it is just it is a pitiful reflection on the Conservative Parliamentary Party at every level. Um, and it reflects really badly, obviously, on the government of the day. Do you think there's any coming back from this? I don't think so. But I, I haven't. Have I, have I have to say I've been of that view really since two, two weeks ago. Um, this is an absolute disgrace. As a Tory MP of 17 years, who's never been a minister, who's got on with it loyally most of the time, 
I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. So, so you seem quietly... I'm, I'm, I'm livid. And, you know, I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it for the ministerial red box. I hope it was worth it to sit around the cabinet table because the damage they have done to our party is extraordinary. I'm sorry, it's very difficult to convey. You look just furious about this. I am, I am. I've had enough. I've had enough of talentless people um, putting their tick in the right box, not because it's in the national interest, but because it's in their own personal interest to achieve ministerial position. And I, and I know I speak for hundreds of backbenchers who right now um, are worrying for their constituents all the time, but now worrying about their own personal circumstances because there is nothing as X as an ex-MP. And a lot of my colleagues are wondering, as many of their constituents are wondering, and how they're going to pay their mortgages if this all comes to an end soon. Just extraordinary, right? That is Conservative MP Charles Walker yesterday outside the House of Commons watching all this chaos unfold. That's an MP talking about his own party and his own government referring to his fellow MPs within the party as some talentless people. Never heard a politician talk like that about in a situation like that. But of course, what we've seen in the United Kingdom has been, well, uh, quite topsy-turvy. We're talking about the, what, fifth or so Tory resignation uh, within six years. And you just wonder wherever Boris Johnson is. I think he's on vacation right now. Actually, he has not been in the UK while all this has been happening. And I'm sure he's having a chuckle to himself watching what has happened to his party and his government after he resigned and stepped aside. So another week or so before they decide what it is that they are going to be doing in that situation. But in case you're just joining us, Liz Truss, the UK Prime Minister, has resigned after just 45 days in office. That must be some kind of record. And I know there's also that story that's been making the rounds on social media that there's a tabloid in the UK that was running a survey. They had a head of lettuce. They were trying to show that as an example of, you know, the tough times, the increase in inflation. I think they're running at more than 8% inflation in the UK right now. And will the lettuce last longer than Liz Truss? What was the question? And they had like a live webcam on that. And it turns out, well, the lettuce is going to win because Liz Truss is no longer be the prime minister in about a week or so. It's craziness over there. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with our Raji Sohal this morning. Raji, can you believe this stuff that's happening in the UK this morning? I woke up early in the middle of the night because people are doing firecrackers outside of my house oh, in the middle of the night now. Sorry. We approach Halloween and got online as I shouldn't. And I saw what was happening in the UK and I couldn't get back to sleep because yes. <laughs> this is what uh, this is what people were saying was going to happen. And you know what? Liz Truss was put in place on purpose in order for this to happen. And conservatives, I think, thought it was going to be funny. Well, it's not funny and it's happening to the UK people who need a you know, their economy to turn around and stat. I'm just, I've been following this, you know, and I'm thinking the changes and things that she had proposed without the consultation, I thought, I don't know how they thought they had a mandate to do that, right? You had an election three years ago. I can see how the British public would be like, wait, wait, wait. If you're going to make these kinds of major changes, uh, we didn't elect you, your party elected you. So it just, turmoil is crazy. So yes, we'll be talking more about that. But you also have a story that I know was making headlines in the UK too. 
Yes. Well, I want to talk to you about the protests that are happening there. Increasingly, there's more of these just stop oil protests that are happening, as well as, uh, you know, these ones from from vegan extremists who are protesting that people uh, consume dairy products and animal products. So there was this bizarre incident this week where vegan protesters in England went into a bunch of different grocery stores at the same time. It was all a coordinated effort. They grabbed cartons and jugs of milk. Get this. They spilled all this product out on the floor. And they said they are promoting a plant-based future. And milk, we know, costs considerably less than other things. But I was just so disgusted at this display of waste and that you see these bratty, out-of-touch people wow. waste food product like that. Yeah. And then staff, obviously, are the ones that have nothing to do with these toddlers and then have to clean it all up after them. And I think patience for these kinds of stunts is starting to grow thin, especially when protesters are causing harm. Because recently we've also seen, within the last week, we actually saw uh, that there was a group, Just Stop Oil protesters, also in the U.K., and a pair of them threw a can of Heinz tomato soup at a treasured Van Gogh painting. Oh, and, and it the was, video I couldn't of believe it, that. Couldn't believe yeah, that. The video of it went viral, obviously, and, you know, almost seven and a half million views at last count. And this wasn't just any Van Gogh. This was his masterpiece, Sunflowers. And one of the protesters in this video, she's shouting, what is worth more? Is it art or life? Is it worth more than food? Meanwhile, she gets arrested. And people are just aghast that this could even happen. This can happen in a museum. This can happen to one of their treasured paintings. And, you know, one commenter wrote on Twitter, what did Van Gogh do to you? (laughs) (laughs) He had nothing to do with oil. It's just, and they're not winning anybody over. And I think we saw something similar to that, right? When we saw the protesters here who were, you know, randomly blocking bridges and causing traffic tie-ups and it caused so much trouble. And I think even... They they reached a point where what they were doing was not helpful to their movement either and causing problems. And so you have to ask yourself, is your cause actually getting the right kind of attention when you're doing this? Yeah. And before somebody starts uh, rattling off an email to me right now saying, don't you believe in democracy? So there, I believe in protest, in fact. And I think there that it's a very legitimate form to express your views on something in a democratic society. Look at what's happening in Iran right now. I, I love that we can express our views in the form of protest. But you're not meant to disturb the peace. And I have been to many, countless, I've participated in countless protests myself when I was young and younger, I'll say. And um, (laughs) Simi, we would march, right? We'd carry signs and it was the police knew the route and we didn't do anything illegal. At the end of the day, we all went home and people were affected by how many thousands of folks they saw on the street expressing their views. So we did have, I felt, an impact on policy immediately. Yeah. No. Right. And now what I see people doing is these one off uh, let's harm people's uh, property or let's harm art. It's a total stunt. And I feel like it's a performance piece. These vegan extremists, for example, I mean, some of them were wearing leather shoes, literally, while they're pouring out this milk. (laughs) And it's like we're not given the opportunity to sit there and have a discussion with them. So. I'm just getting increasingly irritated by this. And so my question is, are we going to start seeing the destruction of art 
um, the way that they've been doing it in the UK. Are we going to start to see that around here? And I, I actually asked a, a top art gallery uh, worker in Vancouver, someone, a curator, in fact, they told me that they are starting to worry about this, but that they don't have a plan on how they're going to handle it. That's kind of scary. It's scary that they have to even think about something like this, right? And when you look back through history, what has survived? It is art. Art has survived. That's why we appreciate it for how for its beauty. And so what is the purpose of destroying or harming that? What is that saying about us today if we do that? Viral video clicks. Seven and a half million people well, view lot. it. Yeah, that and says the, a lot about us. Yeah, and we know also that when, when people are watching those videos, I mean, they're not siding with the protesters. No. They're going, no, the treasured Van Gogh, no, you didn't do that. Exactly. So. Exactly. Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there. Yes, talking about these protests. I know they've been making a lot of headlines. UK just making a lot of headlines in general these days and not for uh, great reasons either. This is Mornings with Simi. That's creepy music, right? Oh, I love that show so much. If you're like me, into mysteries and true crime stuff, then you remember the show Unsolved Mysteries, right? I was a huge fan back when it first aired in the late 1980s when Robert Stack was the host. And now, of course, there's a revival on Netflix. So a bunch of new episodes of this, the latest season, dropped the other day. I was watching it yesterday saw the episode about the UFOs in 1994. They're saying something took over the sky over Lake Michigan. What was it? And I was fascinated by it because I don't really remember that story. So we thought, let's talk about that this morning. By the way, you can check that episode out now if you'd like to. Chris Rokowski is with us, a UFOologist and author of Canada's UFOs Declassified. Chris, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks. Have you watched this episode? Did you see all the, all, all the news about it? Yeah, I did. You know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Unsolved Mysteries, too. I was actually on the, uh, the some of the earlier shows back in the the, uh, in the 90s, so uh, I have a soft spot for them. I know. I love that show. Okay, so tell us about this night in 1994. What was this all about? Well, you know, it was March uh, 1994, and uh, fairly brisk, and this was uh, on uh, the east shore of Lake Michigan, so sort of uh, a little east of Chicago. And a number of people had started reporting some lights in the sky that they, they thought were pretty weird. Uh, some reported a, a number of uh, star-like lights uh, in groups of three or four. Some reported in a line. Uh, generally in the west uh, towards uh, Chicago, towards uh, you know, Milwaukee, that kind of area. Uh, some did report them in the east, though. And, uh, you know, the trouble is there, uh, although, you know, hundreds of people made reports that night to police and, and other agencies, it's not clear whether they all saw the same thing or were looking in the same direction. Uh, you know, we do have a Canadian connection in that uh, we did have reports that night uh, from a little bit east of there in Ontario, looking towards the west, where uh, people in right. Ottawa area had reported seeing some uh, some lights in the sky as well. So uh, it's quite interesting, but the, the sightings themselves wouldn't stand up if it wasn't for the radar uh, recordings and some of the radar observations. There actually is a radar base uh, on the east shore of uh, Lake Michigan run by the weather office. And, of course, police checked with them, and the radar operator uh, you know, was reporting some very strange activity in the sky that night. Right, and yet we also heard how the weather office didn't really want to talk about it, right? They kind of swept it under the rug. Why? Well, it, it's very interesting that uh, this is a case, even though it has a lot of the elements that we really you know, want to see in a UFO case, 
Um, it really wasn't uh, talked about all that much. In the 90s, uh, you know, a report on it appeared in some UFO mags, um, and uh, uh, some, you know, investigators did talk about it. I know the Mutual UFO Network had some investigators that looked into it, but a lot of the witnesses themselves, some of the primary witnesses, weren't interviewed at the time. In fact, the the, uh, the radar operators themselves uh, weren't thoroughly uh, interviewed. The radar tapes were not kept. Uh, we're not entirely sure why that that's so. It would have been nice to have some of these radar tapes. In fact, all we have are drawings of the of the radar screen by some of the uh, the radar operators involved. So it's it's a little strange. It is really strange. But, you know, in your experience of examining kind of these UFO experiences, Chris, is that usually the way it goes? Do people not want to kind of acknowledge what what is seen out there? Well, there's some hesitancy. There certainly is some uh, some stigma associated with it. You know, we're trying to overcome that. Uh, one of the things that the uh, uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force in the States, or whatever they're going to be ending up calling it, um, uh, is trying to do, they've actually mandated uh, with uh, American military uh, uh, procedures to try and encourage military officers in the United States, at least, to come forward and not be afraid and, you know, to, to encourage whistleblowing. So that's a, there's a movement towards that right now, and we're hoping that, that the same thing's going to be going on in Canada. Uh, you know, as far as the average person on the street, you know, it's true that, you know, people are a little hesitant, but a lot of that is, is being overcome because I think... Uh, you know, you can't go to a, a party or a bar or, or dinner uh, with, and bring up the topic of UFOs without somebody saying, you know, I, you know, I have a friend who, yeah, you know, exactly. my cousin. <laughs> so my question to you then, Chris, is there a similarity with what people see? Like, can you say, you know what, you can't really dismiss this because people who have no connection to each other in completely different places see similar things. Well, you know, if, if everybody had saw, you know, um, you know, a purple triangle moving through the sky, that would be uh, something that would be, you know, relatively easy to document and, and try and figure out. But people are seeing literally anything. You know, the Canadian UFO survey that we produce every year, uh, we record all the different types of shapes and, and colors and sizes of objects, and they, it really varies quite a bit. The one consistent thing is that we do get reports from uh, not just civilians, but from pilots, from air traffic control operators, from radar operators. And it's fairly consistent that these people are, are fairly good observers, and yet they come forward to report unusual objects in the sky. So the consistent thing is that people continue to report these things. There are explanations for the vast majority of cases. Uh, you know, in Canada, we get somewhere between 750 and 1,000 cases per year. Um, and of those, only about a, you know a couple of dozen are things that we you know think are really really interesting and t- should be taken a look at by science. Is there a hot spot? I'd have to say that um, uh, there's a lot of hot spots in Canada in terms of where more UFOs are being seen uh, than should be. It's related to population. Right now, we have a bit of a flurry in eastern Canada in the Maritimes, but you know there's a place uh, a, a location known as the Surrey Corridor. Which really, is right over top of you, where a lot of uh, UFOs have historically been seen and reported, especially in the early 2000s, uh, and it's uh, an area where a lot of people have said that they've seen things uh, that you know, don't sound like planes or uh, stars and satellites. What's so interesting to me about this too is that people they kind of try to talk themselves out of it, don't they, Chris? After they see something, because then they do they think that what their mind is playing tricks on them? Well, you know, it's actually a very good idea to try and figure this out before you 
make your report. I mean, uh, don't automatically go to, you know, alien spacecraft, but say, I don't know what this is, but, you know, is there a simple explanation for it? Just a, a matter of using your critical thinking skills uh, and saying, okay, you know, it could be a plane seen from a funny direction, or it could be the Starlink satellites that are being launched all the time and are seen over Canada quite a bit. Elon Musk is shoving those up there 50 at a time every, right. <laughs> every few weeks, it seems. And we do get a lot of reports of those. Um, so, you know, it, it's uh, the type of thing where, yeah, there's some strange things out there, but it is a wondrous universe. And there's some amazing things to be seen in the sky. And uh, I think it's worthwhile paying a little more attention because you never know what might be seen up there. What has kept you so fascinated for so long on this topic? Like, don't you ever get discouraged and think, oh, just some definitive proof, finally, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm very different from most UFO buffs and fans, and I'm not looking for proof because uh, I, I don't know what uh, some of these cases are. I want to look at the raw data. I want to know exactly what people are seeing. And I'm fascinated by the entire phenomenon. Uh, what people report is a small fraction of that, but, you know, the Unsolved Mysteries shows, the, uh, the blogs, the, the uh, mags, uh, the UFO zines, uh, the, sh- the conventions, and and all of that sort of stuff. It's all very, very fascinating. And why are we attracted to this from a sociological and a psychological point of view? What drives people to believe in this type of thing? Because science says uh, they're just sort of ordinary objects and nothing to worry about. And yet uh, scientists more and more are taking this very, very seriously. There are uh, scientists across Canada now joining in the movement to try and better understand unidentified aerial phenomena and trying to track and identify uh, a lot of the objects that are seen by reputable observers. So if somebody sees something that they think might be, you know, unidentified, some kind of object, what questions should they ask themselves and then what should they do? Well, I think number one, get somebody near you to, to say, have you seen that too? It's, in fact, most UFO cases tend to have more than one witness. It's not just somebody standing by his or herself. It's somebody in a car or walking uh, with somebody and you have to nudge them in the, uh, with your elbow in, in their side and say, hey, do you see what I'm seeing? And then you start making your observations. What time was it, by the way? Uh, you know, uh, what direction are you looking? Because this is the type of information we need so that we can rule out all sorts of things. Uh, if you don't have that, and we often do get this by somebody says, I saw something last night, it was a light in the sky. And then you start asking, well, what time was it? What direction were you looking? How high was it in the sky? What color was it? And people don't, you know, they just simply don't have that. And it's like uh, saying, I saw a car crash last night. Well, where were you? But what kind of car? Uh, what time of night was that? You know, if you don't have that information, you can't piece together any kind of a solution. Right. So be aware, right? Make, be aware. Be aware. Gather information. And um, by all means, report it. If you don't report it, we won't have any information to go on. The, the UFO reports are the foundation upon which all the speculation about, you know, whether they're gray aliens or praying mantises right. or whatever. <laughs> if you don't have the information on what people are actually seeing, you can't piece any of that together. That is so true. Listen, Chris, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. No problem. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Why is it so hard for a political party to have a leadership race? It seems like time and time again we have examples where parties run into trouble. The latest, of course, being the NDP. And this isn't just any leadership race. This isn't somebody who's running to be the leader of a party and, you know, leader of the opposition at the same time. This is somebody who, if they win this, they become the premier of the province because the party is in power. So where do these complications come from? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Hamish Telford, Professor 
professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Simi. So this is not new, is it? Like we have seen this happen time and time again. Yes, we have. It is an endemic uh, problem in Canadian political parties going back really decades. Uh, And the problem really is that while our elections are run by professional elections agencies like Elections BC or Elections Canada, leadership contests are run by parties themselves. And it really works on the honor system. And they they have a very weak capacity to monitor and to police activities. And so when allegations arise, it's all a bit of a gong show, frankly. And um, we've seen it again. We have seen it again. And it doesn't seem to matter, honestly, what type of political party we're talking about. Does it like it affects? Don't matter. It doesn't matter where they are on this on the political spectrum. They all have this problem. They do, because we're talking about mass organizations, in in this case of tens of thousands of of members. But in the case of the Federal Conservative Party, um, you know, they they signed up six or seven hundred thousand members. And as I say, parties just don't have the capacity to police um, organizations that are that large. Um, And so what we see, you know, by contrast, in the United States, the primary uh, processes that happen within parties all happens within the the, the parameters of, of elections agencies. And there has been some sort of debate in Canada about bringing leadership contests in particular under the auspices of elections agencies as well. I think that is something that probably should happen. But parties are private organizations, and they tend to guard their private affairs very jealously. If it was sort of open to public regulation, then their membership lists and so on and so forth would have to be open, and they really don't want to do that. Right, but seeing the kind of contortion that the NDP has had to go through here, and we know the BC Liberals had some issues in their leadership race recently, and, you know, we've seen it with the federal conservatives. Like, essentially, you name the party, and they have this issue – you would think, Hamish, that they might welcome a little bit of guidance where the rules would be set and they would all have to follow them. Yes, and I, th- I think what some parties might, what parties are going to have to start thinking about doing is is bringing in sort of a neutral team. Um, so there are going to be there are complaints already about the process that led to the eviction of, of Ms. Apatari here, that the person, uh, the CEO or chief election officer of the party, Elizabeth Cull, is a partisan activist right. in this. She's not a neutral judge. Um, and, and so parties might want to think about hiring a law firm, for example, uh, to to oversee the rules and enforce the rules, and if there are complaints, investigate uh, those complaints. They do hire firms, uh, accounting firms, to do the accounting of ballots. So, they, as I say, they might want to consider bringing in law firms um, to to oversee and enforce the rules of, of the contest. Right. Is this is this a, a, a recent phenomenon, Hamish, or has it always been this case? Because I know it used to be, I was talking to Vaughn Palmer about that this morning. I mean, it used to be a different way of selecting a leader, but now they do the one-person, one-vote system. Oh, I think in some ways in the past it was worse. We used to have delegated conventions, right, right, where each riding association would elect delegates to go to a convention. And then you would have a convention of of a couple of thousand members at at a big convention hall. And the, the election process for, for delegates was, was vicious, to be frank. It was a, it was a ditch fight. Um, and uh, and at, the, at the conventions themselves, there would be a lot of arm twisting going on. And, 
um, and, and bribery, um, you know, bribery to, you know, come to my guest suite, apply people with alcohol and, and all sorts of things like that. So there were different problems in the past with delegated conventions. They were more fun to cover for right. the media. That's, that's uh, what we were saying. Having people vote in their basement. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, but they they were not uh, pristine affairs by any means. That's right. Okay, so uh, clearly this is an issue that do you feel like is going to have to be dealt with? I mean, how are leadership? How are these parties not prepared for this? Does, do they all think, in your opinion, that oh, it's not going to happen to us? I think so, um, and it, it works on the honor system. And certainly, in this case with the NDP, they were absolutely convinced um, that there were going to be no challengers to David Eby. Uh, I remember speaking to an MLA and I said, well, if Evie's the only candidate, he said he will be <laughs> just emphatically. He will. Oh, be. boy. OK. Um, and uh, um, and of course, they, they had a candidate come out of left field. And, and I don't think anyone was David Evie wasn't prepared for it. He hadn't signed up enough people. Um, and I don't think the party was prepared for it either. So that was part of the problem here as well. And if you, know, if you have a contest, you should expect contestants to show up. And this one got a lot of, um, obviously, attention on this, negative attention the party clearly would not want to have. Do you think it's been damaging to them? Oh, I think it's been very damaging. Um, this, this was an opportunity for the NDP to really engage in a generational shift of leadership, going from John Horgan, who was a boomer, 64 years old, down to David Eby, who's 45, uh, clearly Gen X, uh, who I think had some appeal with millennial voters as well. Um, and, and I think they've, they've really lost that now by, by tossing out Angelia Aparai, uh, a young woman of color, uh, a, a millennial, uh, concerned about the environment, as many millennial and Gen Z voters are. Um, I think a lot of younger voters are going to feel that the NDP is not welcoming for them. And this is very damaging to the NDP brand. They're, they present themselves as a progressive party that believes in diversity and inclusion. And this is anything but that. Do you think there's opportunity here for other parties? Possibly. Um, I, I think there's possibly an opportunity here for the Greens to, to capitalize, um, you know, by throwing out a climate activist. The, the NDP is unintentionally sending this signal that they are not welcoming of climate uh, activists or people who are deeply concerned about that. I think there's a, a big opportunity here for the Green Party to, to recruit people who are now mobilized behind this apatorized campaign and want to affect some change. Oh, it just makes BC politics more and more interesting all the time, doesn't it, Hamish? It sure does. Sure does. Thanks so much for your time this morning. You're welcome, Cindy. That is Hamish Telford, a professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley. And interesting that he said that about the Green Party and the potential opportunity for them here in terms of appealing to people who may have been NDP members, who may have just joined for this leadership race, but essentially for the Green Party to be able to say to them, hey, hey, we'll we'll take you, we'll raise these issues, like we're all about that. We will be speaking with Sonia Fursano, leader of the BC Green Party, actually coming up in the well, 15 minutes or so, right after the news at 8.30. We'll talk to her about that. My question to you this morning is this, though. It does appear as though David Eby now is going to be the next premier, you know, barring any legal challenges or anything like that that would change the outcome of what the NDP executive board decided here. So moving towards a new administration, new premier, new cabinet, I'm sure, down the line. My question to you this morning has been, well, what do you tell 
the new premier. What do you say? Listen, this is the issue that needs to be dealt with and needs to be dealt with differently and and as soon as possible. What is top of mind to you that you want to see your provincial government deal with now? Maybe you feel like they haven't done a good job with it. Just take the issue of public safety, right? Do you say, we need you to pivot? We need you to make this the priority. What would you tell them? This is Mornings with Simi. Later today, it is expected that Anjali Apadurai and her team will have a press conference. I think it's about 2 o'clock. That's expected to happen. And they'll talk about their reaction to the NDP leadership executive disqualifying her from running for the NDP leadership. That happened late last night. And lots of reaction to this has been coming in. I've been hearing from people who are very sad about this, say this was the wrong move. And, you know, others who say, listen, the NDP had no choice. So how do the other parties feel about this? Well, joining us now is Sonia Fristino, leader of the BC Green Party, to talk more about it. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm delighted. Thanks, Simi. Now, you've called this a sad day for democracy. Why is that? Well, I think what became very clear uh, was that the NDP were not going to let Anjali Apadurai run in this leadership race uh, and that they found a, a way to to make that happen. Uh, and what that tells uh, all of the people who signed up to support her, climate-oriented uh, voters, uh, voters who were excited by her vision and uh, inspired by her leadership, they've just been told by the NDP that they're not really welcome in the NDP. They're not welcome in that party. And uh, the reality we have with the NDP is that in the last two elections, 2017-2020, they have campaigned on climate leadership, on protecting old growth, on uh, many of the things that Anjali Apadurai has campaigned on, and yet they have governed uh, from the opposite place, expanding fossil fuel infrastructure, subsidizing LNG Canada, continuing to allow for uh, the logging of old growth. And uh, what she did with her campaign was she held a mirror up to this party and they said, no, we, uh, we don't want to be held to account. Is there an opportunity for the BC Green Party here? Well, I I think the the most important thing today uh, is for all of the people who signed up, who got inspired by the idea of a a climate leader in the premier's office, uh, is not to give up on democracy. This is really disappointing and people are upset and they feel disenfranchised. Uh, but the the reality is we have a democratic system uh, that is meant to deliver the kinds of policies and changes that uh, that we've been working on in the legislature for five years that Anjali has uh, campaigned on. And we can't give up on that being the means to change. We need political parties to stop seeing the democratic system as a, a way to advance political power for its own sake. Uh, and to really recognize we should be aligned on these goals. We have a wildfires burning in late October. We are at the end of uh, one of the longest droughts in history in B.C. Uh, everybody, everybody who is holding office right now should recognize that we should share this urgency to address the climate crisis. What did you think, though, about the allegations that some Green Party members were perhaps pausing their membership and going to the NDP or, or that, there are pe- that people could go back and forth? You know, when I ran to be leader of the BC Greens, one of the things that I was hoping to do was inspire people from other political parties uh, to 
to come and join us. That is the nature of a democracy. You're you're meant to have an inspiring vision and get people to be excited about that vision. And uh, it's it's almost it, it is actually absurd uh, that the NDP saw this as a problem. Uh, they go after climate voters, uh, environmentally minded voters in every election and tell them not to vote for the Greens. Uh, and then uh, when they govern, uh, we can see that they are not fulfilling their promises. So, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's up for people and to, to make their decisions about this kind of thing. And, and I can assure uh, everybody out there that Adam and I have been working on these uh, issues and files consistently for the last five years. And, you know, the reason we have at least the old growth review panel report is because we never stopped raising that issue in the BC legislature until finally uh, the NDP agreed to, to take some steps. Yeah, I was wondering about that, though. I thought these are issues that you and your party have been working on. So do you wish that you think, hey, like, no, no, come and join the BC Green Party because we are doing these things? Yeah, I mean, I can see why people got excited about the the idea of a climate leader being, you know, going straight into the premier's office. That 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 opportunity doesn't present itself very often. Uh, but I I do want to assure people there is a political party uh, that is working on, you know, evidence based, uh, reality based solutions to these overlapping crises we have uh, from climate change to the collapsing healthcare system uh, to the, you know, the windfall profits. We have been calling for a windfall profit tax from these companies that are taking more and more from people as, as we're all facing these uh, affordability challenges. You know, we are, we are here and consistently working and we are willing to work with anybody to achieve these goals. And that's that's what motivates us is how do we deliver on these outcomes for British Columbians? And importantly, how do we deliver on a future that future generations don't have to forgive us for? We've had some suggestions that maybe, you know, leadership races for political parties need some rules put in place by Elections BC. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think leadership races... Uh, almost inevitably uh, encounter these uh, these kinds of issues because there are uh, competing priorities and uh, competing visions for outcomes. I think it would be a good thing for us to consider political parties creating their rules and then uh, you know having elections BC uh, be able to oversee these races so that there isn't that uh, perception of unfairness or uh, a, a finger being put on the scale in any way. And I, again, the NDP are going to have to really come to terms with the fact that the perception of what has happened here is that uh, the party decided it was not going to let uh, a woman of color, uh, a climate leader, uh, have the opportunity to put her vision up against David Eby's vision and try to convince the membership uh, which leader they wanted. And uh, that is, uh, again, that is the part that is a real harm to the democracy. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. I appreciate that. That's Sonia Firstenau, leader of the BC Green Party, talking about the issue of leadership races in particular, 
What went wrong with the NDP leadership race here? She has called it a sad day for democracy. Now, there is more to come on this.